0: amen you may be seated this morning we are officially moving into the fourth and final chapter of the book of philippians and so far the overall tone of the book has been very encouraging it's been a very joyful tone Uh, but as we begin moving into chapter number four we're going to see that even in this thriving church even in this church that's in many ways an example of what a healthy church should look like uh, even this church had their church drama Uh, The title of this morning's message is Guarded by Peace, but as we begin looking at our text this morning, we're going to see that peace on earth, goodwill towards men uh, was not the case with certain members at the Church of Philippi. So what was Paul's response to this conflict that was taking place in the church? How does he exhort this church to move forward in light of the conflict that we're working through? And how do we guard our minds and our hearts with God's peace in the middle of that conflict Well, that's what we're going to look at here this morning so let's read all of chapter number four this morning and then we will jump into our bible study philippians chapter number four Uh, we ended last week's message with verse number one but we'll read verse number one and then we'll work our way through the end of the book philippians 4 1 says so then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters my joy and my crown in this manner stand firm in the lord dear friends Verse 2 says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is Anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because, once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Man- For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greeting, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray, and then we will jump into this morning's message, Guarded by peace. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning, and I pray that as we look into your word, it would be good news to those who are broken in spirit. I pray that it would set those who are captive free. I pray that your word this morning would bring liberation where there is bondage, Lord. I pray that it would bring challenge where there is comfort when there shouldn't be. Lord, I pray that your word would do exactly what it needs to in our hearts and lives this morning, and that as we leave here this morning, we would be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We ask this in your name. Amen. So as Paul begins concluding, uh, chap- as he begins the concluding chapter of this short epistle, he addresses this conflict between Eudia and Syntyche. Let's revisit verses 2 or 3 so we can zone in on this uh, issue that's in this church. He says, I urge Odia. And I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. What we are seeing here in verses 2 and 3 is a real-life example of what we have been called to in every chapter of Philippians so far. Paul is urging these two ladies to agree in the Lord. He is urging them to have the same mind. We see this in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says just one thing. And then he lists a whole bunch of things. He says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord. That phrase we saw at the beginning of this series, in one accord, means to have one mind. We see we're called to this in chapter number two. In chapter two, verse two, Paul says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We see it in chapter three in verse 15, when Paul says, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. The command to be like-minded or to be of one mind has continually popped up throughout this little book. Now here in chapter four, The Greek phrase that is translated as agree actually has a deeper meaning than simple intellectual agreement. It means to think, yes. So he's saying think the same way, but the word goes deeper than that. It also means to have the same understanding, to be wise. It means to think and to feel. Sometimes in Scripture, this uh, word gets translated as to savor. I like the way the New American Translation puts it. He, He says to live in harmony. So Paul's not just urging these ladies to think the same way. He's saying, I want you to have the same affection. I want you to have the same mindset. I want your lives to be together in harmony, in unity. Now, we don't know what this conflict was about. Paul doesn't mention the specifics. But it was big enough, it was a big enough conflict that Epaphroditus thought it needed to be brought to Paul's attention. Epaphroditus, we saw, was the person who brought Paul this offering, and he's bringing Paul news of this church. And as he's sharing all the good things that God is doing, Epaphroditus is also burdened about this conflict. And I think given how Paul continues his flow of thought the way he does after verses 2 and 3, that this conflict was beginning to become a bigger issue in the church. I don't think Epaphroditus was just filling Paul in on church gossip. This conflict was probably morphing into a bigger issue in the church, which would explain why Paul not only addresses it head-on, but specifically mentions the two ladies who are at the heart of it. Now, it would seem that these were two ladies who were leaders in the church in their own right, because Paul says in verse number three that they contended for the gospel at his side. Paul knew them. Paul was validating how God had used them in the past. Going back to 127, we see this contending for the faith is a sign of salvation. And Paul acknowledges their salvation. He says that their names are written in the book of life. So we know that these two ladies, they were believers. We know that they were highly involved in this church. God had greatly used them. But we also know that a conflict arose between them. And it was so bad that Paul's like, look, this either is becoming a bigger issue or can become a bigger issue. And Paul actually asks, he brings in a third party to help resolve this. And Verse number three, he says, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women. Now, we don't know who the true partner is. It's in a singular tense, so we know it's one person. Uh, Many people would believe that it perhaps was one of the elders of the church. Some people think it would have been the designated reader of this letter. So Paul sent the letter. They would have got up in front of the whole church and read this letter. And can you imagine being the guy reading it? Paul says, like, yes, I also asked you, your partner, to help these women. And all of a sudden, he's like, oh man, I'm the guy that's got to help these two people. We don't know exactly who this person was, but this situation was big enough where Paul warranted, hey, I'm going to ask somebody else who's present with you. I'm going to ask somebody who knows you, who's there, whose feet are on the ground to help these two women resolve their conflict because these are my fellow contenders for the faith. Paul wants a person who is present, who is there to help these ladies. No doubt this person would have taken this letter, they would have taken the book of Philippians, sat down with Judea, sat down with Syntyche, and worked through it with them, showed them the repeating themes of unity and like-mindedness and joy and contending for the gospel and said, this is exactly what you ladies would have needed and applied the truths of this book to their specific situation. You can tell these ladies have a special place in Paul's heart. He's not calling them out to embarrass them or to put them on the spot He's mentioning them and he's urging them. He's pleading with them because he has a deep, genuine concern about them. He isn't commanding them, get along. You know, sometimes his parents will tell our kids, just get along. This is the get along bench. You're both going to sit on here until you can be happy. No, he's urging them. He's pleading with them out of a deep love. He isn't calling into question their salvation. In fact, he's doing just the opposite. He's reminding them that they are one in the Lord. That's why he says, agree in the Lord. Your names are written in the book of life. You have fought for the sake of the gospel at my side. Please agree in the Lord. They along with Clement. Now again, we don't know anything about him other than he's mentioned here in verse number three. And the rest of the coworkers, they have a special place in Paul's heart. And he's inviting this third party in to come and help, but he's also inviting Clement and really the whole church help these ladies resolve their conflict because they had a special place in Paul's heart special place in Paul's heart because they helped him establish this church. And Paul desperately wants what's best for them and for the kingdom of God. So Paul calls Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He then tells this true partner to help them resolve this conflict. And then he goes back to addressing the entire church. And fresh off dealing with this conflict, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. He then doubles down on it and says, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. Look at verse number four rejoice in the Lord always, period. I will say it again, rejoice, explanation point. Paul is being emphatic, which leads us to our first thought this morning, and that is, we rejoice despite conflict. We can rejoice despite our circumstances. As Paul addressed the elephant in the room, so to speak, with this church, the very next thing he exhorts them to is to rejoice, But what I want to point out is that this rejoicing is not based on their circumstances and our uh, rejoicing isn't based on ours. Paul just dealt with this conflict in the the church. And when they they would have read verse 4, when they would have read this command to rejoice in the Lord, that conflict would not yet have been resolved. Paul's saying, look, I want you two ladies, please agree in the Lord. And then instantly, before the conflict is resolved, before there's a resolution, before there's agreement in the Lord, he says... Rejoice. Imagine how awkward that would have been if you would have said, I urge Stephanie and I urge Sarah, please get along in the Lord. Rejoice. (laughs) That shows us that our rejoicing in the Lord is not based on everything being perfect, everything being okay. Our rejoicing in the Lord is not based on the absence of conflict. He's telling them to rejoice in the Lord despite the internal conflict this church was working through. And as we've seen throughout this book, though, this church wasn't just facing internal conflict. They were also facing external conflict. Remember chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, don't be frightened in any way by your opponents. This church also had opponents outside the church that was causing them to be fearful. I mean, remember where this church was. It was in Philippi, a Roman colony in the Roman Empire that was not friendly towards Christians. So they were wrestling with internal conflict, but they were also facing external conflict. They were facing external threats and opponents that were causing them to be fearful. And in spite of that, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. This church was also concerned about Paul's imprisonment. They were worried about Paul. The person who started their church, their father in the faith, so to speak, was in prison and they were worried about his well-being. That's why Paul showed them in chapter one, hey, don't worry, God's actually using my imprisonment. There's people who are being saved because I am in prison, that I would have never had the chance to give the gospel otherwise. So don't worry, but rejoice. God is using my imprisonment. We saw in chapter 2 that they were worried about Epaphroditus' sickness. And Epaphroditus was worried because they were worried that he was sick. (laughs) I mean, in chapter 3, Paul tells them, you guys need to be on guard because there's false teachers trying to infiltrate your church. And so they have internal conflict, they have external conflict, they're worried about people who they love, and they also have to be on guard against these influences that would lead them away from the true gospel. I mean, these poor people had so many difficult circumstances that could have hindered their joy, but Paul calls them to look above those circumstances and exhorts them to rejoice in the Lord. Because they would always be in the Lord, they could always rejoice. Now, in verse 4, Paul doubles down on the command to rejoice. So in a real way, he's repeating this command to be emphatic. He's saying, look, this isn't negotiable for us. Notice the word will is actually in the future tense. This doubles down on the emphasis. It's like Paul saying, I'm going to say it again right now, and I will continue to say it. I will. This is going to be a drum that Paul says, I'm going to beat again and again and again, because rejoicing in the Lord is vital for our spiritual health. The decision to rejoice in the Lord pulls our eyes off of our temporal circumstances that constantly bombard our attention and constantly attack our affections. And the decision to rejoice in the Lord turns our attention and it places our attention on Jesus and all the eternal promises that we have in Him. Now, this is one of those things that God, I feel like, has been teaching me this past few months, and I have to confess, I am not good at it. Like, it's easier for me to live with this kind of low-grade frustration because of recent circumstances than it is to intentionally rejoice in the Lord. But we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 3-1 that Christian joy is distinct because it takes the source of our joy off of our circumstances. It takes the source of our joy off of things that we can lose, and it places it on what can never be changed and what we can never lose, Jesus. Jesus. Pastor Steve Lawson said, joy is a supernatural excitement we experience in God himself. It involves a gladness of heart in the things of God. Now, we have to be careful. Again, I said this a few weeks ago. I'll say it again. Rejoicing in the Lord is not the same as having a bubbly personality. It's not, well, I'm just a glass is half full type of person. As one pastor put it, joy is the emotion of our salvation. And so as we look to Christ as we remind ourselves of our salvation, as we look to what is eternally true, our hearts become full and that emotion we experience as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we are glad in heart because of our salvation, that is authentic Christian joy. That is the intentional pursuit Paul is calling us to. That's something that we can't conjure or fake. That's not something we experience because we have a bubbly personality. Joy is a glorious gladness and a deep delight in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know holidays are tough for a lot of people because they bring to the forefront of our mind painful memories and painful emotions. On the backdrop of celebration, it brings into the sharp reality loss and pain. And there's a place for grieving and mourning. That is a good and right emotional response to loss and to pain. The command to rejoice doesn't negate those proper emotional responses, but it does transcend them. So in our mourning and in our grief, fix your eyes on Jesus. As you are working through conflict, fix your eyes on Jesus. As you are dealing with difficult circumstances, as you are dealing with things that cause you to be fearful, fix your eyes on Jesus. And rejoice in Him. One of the ways the peace of God guards our hearts and our minds is by rejoicing in the Lord. As we rejoice in the Lord, He does a work in our hearts, and then the peace of God begins to guard our hearts and our minds. We rejoice despite conflict or circumstances. But let's look at verse number five. Verse number five, Paul says, Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Our next thought this morning, as we seek to have the peace of God guard our minds and our hearts, is we're gracious because God is near. We're gracious because God is near. Now, the word for graciousness here gets translated in in a few different translations as reasonable or moderation, specifically the English Standard or the King James. But the majority of Bible translations actually render this word gentle or gracious or a gentle spirit. In fact, in all other places in the New Testament, this word gets used. That's how it gets translated. So I would argue that the word graciousness is actually a really good way to translate this particular word. And so here's the flow. As we lift our eyes from our circumstances to the Lord and we intentionally rejoice in him, God does an inward work in us and we become gracious. We become gentle. And Paul is saying in verse number five, that graciousness or gentleness should be known to everyone. That should be the mark of a Christian. Gentleness, graciousness. This word means to not be pushy or not be assertive in this kind of angry, pushy way. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 give us a great picture of this. 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, So we should look to our own interests. We should take care of our needs, but not just that, but rather to the interests of others. So as believers, we are to be known for being gentle, for being gracious. This is why he says, I want this attribute to be known about you by everyone. We're not to limit our gentle, humble demeanor to simply people who are in the church. Paul says, everyone should know this about you. In the church or outside the church, this should be the mark of believers, gentleness, graciousness. Now this doesn't mean we avoid conflict or are weak. Grace is not weak or soft. We address conflict. We stand for truth, but we do it in a gentle and gracious way, just like what Paul is doing in chapter 4 verses 2 and 3. He's displaying for us how we can graciously and gently deal with conflict and stand for truth. So the question for us to consider is, even in the middle of difficult circumstances, even in the middle of conflict, are we known for our gentleness? In the middle of conflict, are we known for being gracious? Boy, it's so easy to have a sharp edge on our attitude when we're stressed out, isn't it? When I get overwhelmed or stressed out, I'm more prone to snap at my kids. I'm more prone to be emotionally distant with people. Gentle or graciousness is not always the immediate response. And the reason that I am like that sometimes is because I've forgotten the very next sentence in chapter four. The Lord is near. God is near. When we realize how close God is to us, it's easier to rejoice in him, isn't it? And as we rejoice in him, we allow that rejoicing to turn that angry frustrated stressed out spirit into a gentle gracious spirit you may be overwhelmed friend but god is with you sit with that for a minute the lord is near the lord who is slow to anger the lord who is abounding in faithful mercy faithful love our lord who is gentle The Lord, who, as we saw, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death. He is with you. He is near you. We are to be marked with graciousness because our gracious God is near to us. And because God is near to us, we can give our worry to God in prayer. Look at verse number six. Don't worry about anything. (laughs) I always laugh when I read that. I'm like, yeah, okay, Paul. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So our third thought this morning is we give worry to God in prayer. How do we experience the peace of God as a guard? How do we experience the peace of God as a garrison around our minds and around our hearts? We give our worry to God in prayer. So as we seek to have our minds and hearts guarded by the peace of God, Paul calls us to give those worries to him in prayer. Now, again, the command to don't worry, or some translations will say, don't be anxious about anything. I'm just like, really? (laughs) Even the Apostle Paul, the person who's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, admits to his worry and anxiety in chapter 2. I mean, chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, he's talking about how Epaphroditus was sick and how Epaphroditus nearly died. And he said, I'm very eager to send Epaphroditus to you so that you may rejoice again when you see him and I may be less anxious. (laughs) Paul's like, I'm anxious to get this guy back to you because he nearly died and we're all stressed out about him. But I love the reality of how Paul is with us, how real he is. And several times in chapter three, Paul's like, look, I have not yet arrived at what God is calling us towards. And in chapter four, what he's calling us to is don't worry, but pray. So the way we grow, the way we grow in experiencing the peace of God, which passes understanding, it makes no sense is by giving our worries to God in prayer. Taking the cause of your worry and telling God about it. Taking the cause of your anxiety and talking to God about it. Now, if you remember back to the final message in chapter 2, we saw how Timothy had this deep care or this deep concern for the church. In 2.20, Paul says, I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. And we saw back in chapter 2 how that word for care... That Greek word is the exact same Greek word here used here in 4.6. So in chapter U, it's used as a positive, this deep care Timothy has for a church. But in chapter 4, it's used as a negative, like don't be anxious, don't worry. What makes the difference between what seems to be the same emotion? Well, the answer to that question is another question. Don't you love it when people do that? I don't, because <laughs> it normally means I'm about to, about to be convicted. Here's, here's how we know. Is this positive or negative? Are you... In your deep concern, whether it's for yourself or for other people, are you in that deep concern still experiencing the peace of God? Or is your deep concern, often a right concern, rising to such a level that you can no longer experience the peace of God? Are you struggling to trust God with what you're concerned about? See, we can reverse-engineer what we've talked about this morning. Do you find yourself being ungracious? In your concern, do you find you have that edge to your spirit? In your concern, do you find yourself slipping into this selfish, pushy, antagonistic type of self-preservation? Is your concern hindering your rejoicing in the Lord? If the honest answer to any of those questions is yes, then we've slipped into an unhealthy type of concern that falls into what we say in English is worry or anxiety, whether it's for yourself or others. And when you find yourself slipping into that worry, Paul says, give that to God. Just give it to him. Now, in the previous point in verse 5, in the Christian standard, that's two sentences. Verse 5 is two sentences. Let your graciousness be known to everyone, period. The Lord is near, period. And the point we made from verse 5 is that we can be gracious because God is near to us. But if you take away the verse numbers, we can make the exact same point for the next sentence in verse 6. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. (laughs) But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. So be gracious because God is near. And because God is near, don't worry, but pray. Now in verse 6, there are a few different elements for prayer that Paul gives us. He says, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Prayer is the general term used in the New Testament for talking with God. When we speak to God, we're praying. Now, we can speak to God and not ask anything. I know sometimes we think of prayer as i got to get my grocery list and I just say that to God, but prayer is so much more than that. Prayer, in the general sense, is just me talking to God. It's me directing my thoughts and my mind to God, whether that's in my mind or verbally out loud. Prayer is talking to God. And so what Paul is calling us to do is talk to God about what's worrying you. Talk to God. Tell him what is causing anxiety in your life without even asking him anything. That's a good and right thing to do. That should be a regular habit and a regular practice in our life. Man, Lord, I'm so worried about this. This situation is just stressing me out. Tell God what's bothering you. God invites you to do that. I mean, sometimes, you know, you talk to people and you get the sense they're asking how I'm doing, but they don't really want to know how I'm doing, right? God is never that way with us. God invites you. Tell me what's wrong, man. Tell me what's bothering you, dear daughter. I mean, look at 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Unrelated to the sermon, but I'd argue the proper time is at his second coming. Verse 7, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Stop and think about that for a minute. The fact that God cares about you. He cares about those things that cause you worry. He cares about those things that cause you anxiety. And he's like, my dear child, give it to me. Just give me that problem. Tell me about it. Cast it on me. It means like throwing it to him. I'm getting it out of my life and I'm throwing it to God. Have you ever been angry and just chuck something? <laughs> like I'm getting this thing out of my life. That's what God says to you. Cast it on him. Throw it to God. Talk to God. Tell him about your worries. Tell him what's causing anxiety in your life. And as you tell God your worries, the burden of those worries is rolled off of you and onto him. What a privilege. What an amazing reality that is ours by birthright because we're children of God. Don't worry, but pray. Wow. But it gets even better. Paul doesn't say, just talk to God about your problems. It's talked about, talk to God about your problems. And it's also ask God to work in your problems. Look at verse 6. Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So the God of the universe is inviting you to bring your needs to him. And he's inviting you to say, hey, ask me to work in those problems. I want you to bring your needs to me. I want you to tell me about them. I want you to ask me to work in that situation. This is mind-blowing. The all-powerful creator of the universe is inviting us into such an intimate personal relationship with him that everything that causes us worry and everything that causes us anxiety and everything that stresses us out, he's just like, just give it to me. I want to work in this on your behalf. Now, as we're considering how prayer can guard our minds and hearts with the peace of God, Paul gives us such an important piece here in verse number six. Peace as in peace of the puzzle, not peace of God. He says, through prayer and petition, this is the important piece, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. This is not a selfish or commanding demand we're placing on God. God, you better work because I did what was right and you owe me, God. Like, you can pray that way. God's shoulders are big enough to handle, but whenever you see people pray that way in Scripture, the person that changes is them. (laughs) Their hearts are the ones that are like, oh, my bad. (laughs) That's not what Paul is saying. It's this humble, bringing my needs to him, filled with a heart of thanks for what God has already done. As we cast our anxieties on him, we replace those anxious thoughts, we cast them out of our mind, we give them to God, and we we replace those with thanksgiving for what God has done. God, I'm so stressed out right now. These are all the things that I am, I'm, and I'm asking you to work in these, but Lord, I thank you for how you're, you are working. I thank you for how you're sustaining me in this problem. Hasn't, hasn't that been us these last few months, church? God, we really need you to work in our church. God, we are so desperate for the work of your Holy Spirit. We are so desperate to be a church that brings you honor and glory. And God, we just thank you for the way that you have sustained us. God, we thank you for the way that you have carried us. And so Paul is telling us, yes, give those anxious thoughts to God. Ask him to work in it, but do it with thanksgiving. As you bring your needs to God, thank God for the way that he is already working. A heart that is thankful is a heart that is at peace. One of the keys to overcoming worry or overcoming anxiety is a heart of thanks. And I think sometimes we just think, oh, that's too simple, and we ignore it. We want something more complicated so we can feel better when we don't do it. But it's real simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. As you go to God, just give, just praise Him. Thank Him. Rejoice in Him. We can rejoice despite our circumstances. We are gracious because God is near. Because God is near, we can give every worry to God in prayer with thanksgiving. Now as we wrap it up, let's look at verse number seven. The whole theme, the title of our message, verse 7. And so we do these things, we rejoice, we are gracious to everyone, we pray, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is a peace that can't be found anywhere the world offers you peace. And the world has all kinds of carrots that dangles out on the stick that says, I'll do this and you'll get peace. It's all fake. It's not real. This is true, genuine peace. It's the peace of God. And because it's the peace of God, that tells us we can't find it anywhere outside of God. That means it's only found in him, and it also means it's only for those who are in him. You can't experience the peace of God if you're not in God, if you're not in Christ. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14:27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. My peace, God's peace, I give to you. It's a gift. It's available to you. I don't give it to you as the world gives. This isn't the world's version. This is God's version. This is my version, Jesus says. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. So for those of you who have not yet placed your faith and trust in Christ, this is step number one. Being in Christ, accepting Jesus as your Savior by faith, calling out to him to save you. To experience the peace of God, you need to be at peace with God. And Romans 5.1 tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here or you're watching online and you're still wrestling with who Jesus is, let me encourage you to reach out to us so we can walk with you as you learn who Jesus is. That's the most important step. You may say, yeah, g- give me the five steps to have a peaceful holiday. That's, that's not it. Like the most important decision anybody can ever wrestle with or make is, who is Jesus? Is he the God we see portrayed in the Bible? And if he is, I'm all in. I'm following him. I'm placing my faith and trust in him. I'm trusting in him and him alone. So if you're here this morning and you're watching online, this is what you need to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? For those of us who are believers... For those of us who are in Christ, verse 7 is a promise. He says, this will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, my peace I give you. Verse 7 is a promise. Ephesians says that Jesus is our peace. Ephesians 2.14, for he is our peace, who has made both groups and tore uh, tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is our peace. Because of Jesus, we're at peace with God. This peace, however, that we're seeing here in Philippians... It's not something we conjure up on our own. However, God does tell us the path to walk on to experience it. Our experience of this peace that Jesus has given to us is conditional. That's why verse 7 starts with the word and. If you look up that little Greek word, it's often translated throughout the scripture as then. So God doesn't tell us, hey, go worry yourself sick and the peace of God will guard your heart. (laughs) It's not not the path God has given us to experience his peace. To some degree, worry and anxiety are the natural impulses of living in a fallen world. What Paul is helping us know how to do in verses 4 through 7 is he's helping us know how to combat that natural impulse of living in a fallen world. We rejoice in God. We walk in graciousness with a gentle spirit. We pray and we give thanks to God and then the peace of God guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's like, Paul is saying, look, here's the wall of protection. This is how you get inside the city so you can experience that protection. That's what Paul is helping us understand. Now, I want to be so careful here. I don't want to negate the place of getting professional or medical help when it comes to legitimate imbalances in our minds and our brains that can cause anxiety. There's a reason God told Elijah, eat and take a nap, right? I'm a big proponent of seeking professional and medical help. I've gone to therapy multiple times myself. And while I will always support those things, those are important, they're gifts of common grace that God has given us, I also want to say we will shortchange ourselves from experiencing the full peace of God if we ignore verses four through seven. If you think, I just need to go to therapy and talk about my problems, but you don't intentionally rejoice in the Lord, you don't intentionally give thanks to God, you don't intentionally pray and walk in the spirit of grace and gentleness, you're going to shortchange You're healing. You're going to shortchange experiencing the peace of God. These are the weapons God has given us for battling our anxiety, for battling our worry. This is one of the reasons when it comes to therapy or counseling, I'm a huge proponent of it needs to be from a place with a Christian worldview. Because a good Christian counselor is going to help you know how to take these spiritual weapons that God is giving us so that we can combat the lies of the enemy and we can renew our minds in truth. Medication may be a good, necessary, right thing to do. Don't misunderstand me. Don't go home and say, oh, I don't need to take my medication. Pastor Nick said all I need to do is pray. It's not what I'm saying. Medication is a good and necessary thing to help regulate your mind, but it will not renew your mind and the truth of God's word. This is a piece that does not make sense. So get the help that you may need, but then also run to verses four, five, six, and seven. Run to those verses. Get the help you need so that you can live those out. <laughs> this is a peace that does not make sense. It, I love the word he uses here in verse 7. It surpasses all understanding. That's the same word we saw in chapter 3 for how Paul described the surpassing worth of Jesus. It's far and above anything we could ever imagine. And this peace Paul is telling us can guard our hearts and minds. He's like, it doesn't make sense. It passes far and above anything we can understand, and it guards our hearts and our minds. That word guard there brings this whole thought, all these verses, it brings that into the realm of spiritual warfare. That's an intentional word. Paul's not just throwing out, oh, that word sounds cute. No, this is a guard. This is our shield. This is something that God gives us. The peace of God is a strong defense against the lies of the enemy. Because when you're at peace with God, You don't need to buy the lie. You don't need to chase that carrot dangling out in front of you. There's just so much peace. There's so much contentment. And God, you are now equipped to combat the lies of the enemy, to combat the lies of the world, to combat the lies of your own flesh. The peace of God is how we have a strong defense in our spiritual fight. The peace of God is like a wall that protects a city. And when those walls are up, the lies of the enemy just bounce off them. The darts of the enemy, they just bounce off that wall of the peace of God. But if I were to be honest with you, I was struggling with this sermon this week because I was like, God, couldn't we have preached this when I just felt like I was nailing it, right? Like, this has been one of those few weeks I found myself just fighting so many anxious thoughts and everything that's been going on these last few months, just so much stress involved with all of that. And then I get to this passage, I'm like, really? Okay. Okay. <laughs> But I'm so thankful for the gentle leading of the Holy Spirit because even though it's difficult, even though to some degree I feel like a hypocrite up here preaching this because there's been nights I couldn't sleep because I'm stressed out. Um, I'm so thankful because it's in these difficult moments that we learn what these verses really mean. It takes these verses beyond just coffee mug theology and it turns them into real life anchors for our sanctification. And all of a sudden, this isn't just some cute verse that we frame and, you know, it looks good in our home. This is real life. This is spiritual warfare. To quote the most repetitive song ever, this is how I fight my battles. (laughs) I renew my mind in truth. I give those anxious thoughts to God. I intentionally rejoice. I intentionally thank God for what he's done. That means I'm looking for what God has done. So, church, let's experience the guard, the defense, the wall of protection Jesus has given us in his peace. Let's guard our hearts and our minds with the peace of God. Guard our minds from our lives. Guard our hearts from things that want to pull our affections away from him. Let's rejoice in the Lord despite our circumstances. Despite the conflict you may be facing with a coworker or a family member. And don't the holidays bring out the conflict with the family members, right? Rejoice in spite of that. Rejoice. Intentionally say, yeah, my family's a hot mess, but I'm going to rejoice because I am in Christ and nothing can ever take that away. Not even my uncle who has crazy political views. Rejoice in Jesus despite our circumstances. And let your graciousness be known to everyone. It breaks my heart to see the way in the public space Christianity is not known for its gentleness. And it's no wonder we're losing our witness. Let your graciousness be known to everyone because God is near. When that crazy uncle on Christmas Day is driving you nuts with his extreme political views, just remember, take a deep breath. I tell my kids all the time, in through your nose, out through your mouth. The Lord is near. So I'm going to let my gentleness be known to my crazy uncle. (laughs) Amen. Thanks, Joyce. And give every worry to God in in prayer. Replace that anxiety with thanksgiving. God, I'm so stressed out about this. I'm so worried about this. I don't want to see my crazy uncle right now. But I'm going to thank you for the way you are working in my life. I'm going to thank you that I'm saved. I'm going to thank you that you are near me no matter what. I'm going to thank you that I can talk to you right now. That the God of all the universes, I never get a busy signal from him. I'm going to thank you that you love me so much you invite me to give all my trauma to you. Let's be the church that rejoices despite circumstances, is known for our graciousness and gentleness because God is near and that gives every worry to God in prayer and replaces those anxious thoughts with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our hearts and minds would be guarded by your peace. And Lord, as we leave here this morning, I pray that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only i pray that your spirit would lead us into rejoicing i pray that your holy spirit would break through the fog and all the noise the world just throws at us all the commercialism and all the noise that gets thrown at us during the holidays i pray that your spirit would just break through all that through your word break through all that in prayer and remind us no 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 you can rejoice you can give thanks. When you want to punch the guy that cut you off in the store, you can be gentle. And I pray that we as a church would be known for our gentle, gracious spirit. And that we would be a church that is serious about prayer. Holy Spirit, drive us to prayer, I beg you. Lord, I am so burdened that our church would become a people who pray. Jesus said the temple shall be known as a house of prayer and then because of the finished work of Christ the Holy Spirit now moves inside of us making every believer the temple of God and so I pray that we as believer priests would be known for prayer and that our lives and our minds would be houses of prayer and that we would just continue to give these anxious thoughts to you and as the worry comes barging in we would just funnel that straight to God Lord, do this work in us. Lord, we can't do this on our own. Our flesh will lead us down a spiral of anxiety that'll cripple us. But your Holy Spirit does just the opposite. Your Word does just the opposite. Your body, the Church of Christ, does just the opposite. And so I pray that we would be a church that is marked by what we see in these verses and that your peace would God got our minds from lies, got our hearts from things that would draw affection away from you. And that the peace of God that makes no earthly sense would be our regular experience.